he had a unique ministry as an apostle, yet in a general sense all Christians are called to the ministry and those are general principles there that apply to every believer. And uh, If you're still there in 2 Corinthians 4, you can just note a few things about ministry. Uh, Paul starts with the fact that ministry is a gift of mercy. Uh, we don't deserve any ministry. Uh, any spiritual gift you have is a gift of mercy from God. Uh, we should be in hell and instead God saves us and then gives us gifts and ministries to serve Him, and what a joy that is. Then he goes on and says that ministry demands purity, both moral purity and doctrinal purity. If you're going to be a faithful minister of Christ, you're going to be faithful to witness to unbelievers, faithful to minister to the body of Christ, you're going to have to be a pure believer. You're going to have to pursue holiness. And then he says it demands suffering. It demands suffering. But then it also demands an eternal perspective because momentary light affliction prepares for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we know we suffer now. Uh, That's something that perhaps we'll experience more increasingly in our culture as time goes on. But our suffering has an ultimate reward. The reward is that people who hear the gospel through us are brought into the kingdom of God and one day will be brought into perfect glory in that kingdom. So our suffering has a reward. So that's what we are. We're all ministers. 2 Corinthians 5 says we're ministers of reconciliation. So may we be faithful and labor the way Paul did for the good of his church and the glory of his name. Let's pray and then we'll continue our study in 1 John. Father, thank you so much for giving us the gift of ministry. What a privilege it is to serve our Lord. Not only do you not damn us to hell as we deserve, but you use us in your kingdom work to bring more into your kingdom. We are ministers of reconciliation. All of us who have been reconciled to God have the responsibility of telling others how they also can be reconciled to God. And what a joy that is, whether that's in our workplace, or if that's in our schools, or if that's in our family, if that's in our neighborhood, whether that's out in the public on a street corner, wherever that may be. We're all ministers of reconciliation by grace. And we receive that ministry by mercy. You've called us to be your witnesses because you're gracious to us. We know that ministry depends upon divine sovereignty. Paul says if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel is glorious, and if someone can't see the glory of the gospel, it's not because something's wrong with the gospel. It's because something is wrong with the eyes of the sinner. Just as if a man can't see the glory of the sun, the problem's not with the sun's light, the problem is with the blindness of the person. So it is with those who are blind to the glory of God. And yet you are the one who shines in our hearts to give us a light of that knowledge of the glory of Christ. And so we know that our ministry, if we're going to have any fruit in our ministry, if we're going to see people brought to Christ, if we're going to see our family members and our friends saved, It must be by the sovereign power of God through the gospel of Christ. And we also know, Lord, that we're going to have to suffer if we're going to be faithful ministers of Christ. We're going to have to suffer. We have this treasure of the gospel in clay pots, jars of clay, frail, sinful, broken human bodies that are decaying outwardly day by day, though our inner man's being renewed day by day. And we have this treasure of the gospel ministry in these clay pots so that the power would be evident that it's not of us but of God. But we also know, Lord, that as we suffer and as we faithfully live for You and as we faithfully declare the good news to others, we know that You'll use us to bring others in Your kingdom. Grace will spread to more and more people and the giving of thanks will abound to the glory of God.
And ultimately, it will abound to our own glory because momentary light affliction prepares for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And we look forward to that day. So thank you for the ministry, Lord. Thank you for the local church, the body of Christ. Thank you for each and every part of that body, all of our members, all of our attenders, all of our visitors and guests. Thankful for everyone here this morning. My prayer for all of us, Lord, is that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, that our love for You and for Christ and for each other would abound still more and more, and that we would be conformed to the image of the Savior. I pray that our worship's been acceptable to You so far, and now we come to the height of our worship, the greatest expression of our worship, when we (coughs) quietly hear from heaven in hopes to respond in obedience and praise. So meet with us, speak to us through your word as we know that you will, and help us to understand and obey it for your glory. Amen. Well, all right, if you have your Bible, we're still working our way through 1 John. So you can go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. And for this morning, we come to the final section of the third chapter, namely verses 19 through 24. 1 John chapter 3. Verses 19 through 24. And as you already well know, John wrote this letter to refute a group of false teachers that were trying to deceive the believers of Asia Minor. These false teachers denied the true nature of Christ. They denied the necessity of obedience. They denied the centrality of love. And in a word, they presented their own counterfeit version of Christianity. And so in response, John writes this letter as a series of tests by which believers can distinguish between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity. It becomes a series of tests by which we can determine if we have eternal life, if we are saved or not. And there are three tests that run repeatedly through the letter, the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. And you're no doubt familiar with all of those tests by now because John just keeps cycling through these tests over and over and over again. Cycle 1 of those tests started in chapter 1, verse 1 and ran all the way to chapter 2, verse 17. The second cycle started in verse 18 of chapter 2 and ran all the way to verse 18 of chapter 3. We'll get into the third cycle of the test in chapter 4 in a few weeks. But for now, in the passage this morning, John kind of provides us a summary of of all the tests. Usually, each passage deals with one test, but this morning, in this text, we get to see all of them together. So let me read that text to you. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. John writes, We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. There is a key idea that becomes obvious in the passage because of three similar words that John uses. The first word is the word know. The word know. 
verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth. He uses it again in verse 24. There he says, we know by this that He abides in us. As Christians, there's something that we can know. The second word is the word assure. The word assure. He uses that in verse 19 as well. He says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. We can have assurance. And finally, the last word is the word confidence. The word confidence in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Confidence. This is a passage then about assurance, about confidence, about knowing with certainty. It's a passage about having our hearts assured before God. That is to say, this is a passage about how you can have assurance of your salvation. How you can know with absolute certainty that you are saved. Despite the clarity of Scripture on the issue of assurance, many are confused about the topic of assurance in our culture and in the world of Christianity. Many actually struggle with assurance. Lots of people who profess to be Christians fear that they're on their way to hell. They have this fear of impending doom and judgment. They have terrifying thoughts about God. They're fearful of death. They're fearful of hell. They're fearful of judgment. They're fearful of the wrath of God. Perhaps there are people here this morning that struggle with that very reality, the reality of assurance. But there are people that just cannot, no matter what, it seems, come to have assurance of their salvation. And now assurance can be a very strange thing because there are many people who are false converts who are absolutely confident that they're headed for heaven right now. People who are extremely confident they're headed for heaven even though they are not. Even though they're headed for hell. I talk to people on the streets often that tell me they're on their way to heaven only to find out they don't go to church, they don't read their Bible, they don't understand the Gospel, they're living in sin and unrighteousness, but there's no doubt in their mind that they are going to heaven. Despite the fact that they live in sin. They profess Christ. Perhaps they even go to church. Maybe they read their Bibles from time to time. They know Christian lingo. But they live in unrighteousness and sin and worldly indulgence and yet still think they're headed for heaven. People who live like that should doubt the validity of their faith. People who live like that should doubt the legitimacy of their salvation. They have every reason to do just that. But often because some preacher told them that all they have to do to get into the kingdom is pray a prayer, because of that, they never doubt the reality of their salvation or the legitimacy of their faith. They never question their eternal destiny because they're in. They went through the hoops. They signed the card. They prayed the prayer. They accepted Christ, quote-unquote. And so they're in. Any idea of questioning your salvation now is to question God because our salvation is secure. We don't need to question our faith. That's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing because people end up being damned to hell with false assurance saying, Lord, Lord, did we not pray the prayer? Did we not go to church? Did we not wear Christian t-shirts in your name? And then they hear those dreadful words, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. There are many people just like that. People with false assurance. People who in the language of Jeremiah 6.14 say to themselves, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They speak peace to their hearts, but judgment is to come. Many have a false assurance just like that. However, on the other hand, the strange thing is that there are actually true Christians, people who do belong to the Lord, who struggle to attain assurance. People who are headed for heaven, whose eternal destiny has been secured by the work of Christ, and yet they are uncertain about their destiny. They have the problem that John mentions in our text. Their heart condemns them. They have a condemning heart. No matter how godly they may live, no matter how much they may love Christ, no matter how clearly He may be working in their hearts, they still struggle to attain assurance. They just cannot believe that they're headed for heaven. But John's exhortation is relevant for both groups. Because John says there is a way to know. There are certain distinguishing marks that identify a true believer. Those who see these marks in their lives can have confidence in their eternal destiny. Those who do not see the marks in their lives can have no assurance at all. And it really is as simple as that. Of course, to further complicate the matter, there are Christian groups who deny the possibility of assurance altogether. Pelagians and Arminians say that you can actually lose your salvation. Salvation is maintained by human effort and human works and human merit. In a system like that, assurance is utterly impossible. Utterly impossible. Because you never know if you have enough works, you never know if you have enough righteousness, you never know if you have enough merit, and even if you ever get there, who knows, you may wake up tomorrow and blow it by committing some mortal sin. So no one in a system like that can have certainty. The Roman Catholic Church is one such system that teaches this. If you don't believe me, just read the Council of Trent. They often, in the Council of Trent, condemn the idea of absolute assurance. In Roman Catholicism, it's a synergistic effort where the sinner works together with God and has to maintain salvation by earning merit. In fact, if you ask a Roman Catholic, almost none of them are confident they're going to heaven. At best, they're going to purgatory because they have to be purged for their sins because they just don't die with enough merit. And again, they could always lose any merit they have by committing some mortal sin. So in Roman Catholicism, assurance is absolutely impossible. That's a reason to be upset and sad and brokenhearted for our Roman Catholic friends, isn't it? They live the whole of their lives working and laboring and ministering only to have absolute no certainty as to where they're going to spend eternity. What a sad way to live your life. But Scripture is clear that believers can possess absolute certain assurance of their salvation. That's the whole reason he wrote the book, 1 John. John wrote the letter to give believers confidence. In 1 John 5.13, he states his theme. There he writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. According to John, we can know that we have eternal life. We don't have to live in the dark 
about our destiny, we can have certainty as to where we're going. So believers can and should have assurance of their salvation. In fact, it is our responsibility, according to 2 Corinthians 13.5, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, to make our calling and election sure. It is our responsibility to attain assurance of our salvation. So we can have assurance. But how? How can we possibly know with certainty that we're headed for heaven? How can we know with certainty that we are truly saved? John helps us with that in this passage this morning by providing four avenues of assurance. Four avenues of biblical assurance. And as we work through this passage this week and in the coming weeks, may we commit ourselves to examining our own hearts in the light of these avenues to find out if we are indeed in the faith, that we might assure our hearts before Him. So four avenues of assurance. We'll look at the first one this morning, and then Lord willing, we'll look at the other three next time. So number one. Number one, assurance in love. Assurance in love. That's a familiar topic, isn't it? It's nothing new for us. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. John says we can know that we're of the truth. We can know that we're of the truth. What does it mean to be of the truth? It means to be truly saved. It means to be a true believer. It means to be of God, who is the God of truth. It means to be of Christ, who is the way and the truth. It means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. It means to have been saved by the Gospel, which is the message of truth. It is to be a true believer, a child of God. To be of the truth is the same as what he said in chapter 2, to be in the light. It is to be in the realm of holiness and truth and salvation. It is to be a true believer. It is, as verse 14 puts it, to have passed out of death into life. It's to be born of God, born from above, born from heaven, to be a child of God. And John says we can know that we are of the truth. We can know we are saved. We can know we're headed for heaven. How? By this. By this. We will know by this that we are of the truth. By what? What does this refer to? Well, you have to go back to the previous passage, verses 11 through 18. What has John been teaching us? He's been teaching us about the message of love. The message of love. Verse 11, For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Verse 16, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And finally, verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And then, he comes to verse 19 and he says, By this we know that we are of the truth. By love. By love. If we love in deed and truth, we can have certainty that we are of the truth. Love is the sure sign of true salvation. Those who look at their lives and see love as the dominant characteristic 
can have confidence that they are true believers, true children of God, and truly headed for heaven. And by coming to know that we're of the truth, John adds, we will assure our heart before Him. We can have assurance. We can assure our heart. That word assure translates the Greek word pytho, pytho, and it means to persuade or to have confidence. It was often used to refer to winning someone over by persuasion. It's to persuade. So John is saying this. If you look at your life and you can see increasing habitual Christ-like love as the pattern of your life, then you can win your heart over. You can persuade your heart that you are indeed a true Christian. You can convince your heart that you're a true believer. And you can have confidence and assurance of heart before Him. Before Him. And we can have this assurance, verse 20 says, in whatever our heart condemns us. You see, that's the issue. The issue is a condemning heart. The issue is an accusing conscience. The issue is that God's law has been written in the hearts of all people so that all people are born with a knowledge of right and wrong. All people have a conscience. The word conscience, two words. The word science means knowledge. The prefix con means with. We are with knowledge. We know right from wrong. We know, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 32, we know God's righteous decree that those who do evil are worthy of death. We naturally know that. All people know that. Because all people are made in God's image. All people have God's law. All people have a sense of morality and justice. All people know right from wrong. And therefore, because we're all guilty of violating the law of God, our consciences naturally produce guilt. And believers in particular, having our hearts and minds and consciences informed by Scripture, we know that God is holy and righteous and just. We know that God is angry with the wicked every day. We know that all have sinned against Him and have incurred guilt. We know that if we die guilty before Him, we will be consigned to eternal hell. We understand that. And so naturally, our consciences produce guilt. They accuse us, Romans 2.15 says. The conscience becomes a warning system. If there's a fire in your house, the fire alarm serves to warn you of the danger so that you evacuate the building. But if you ignore the fire alarm and you just knock it off the wall and go back to sleep, you're liable to die and be burned. That's the way it is with the conscience. The conscience is God's warning system, our divinely given warning system that warns us of impending doom and danger, and if you ignore it, you do so at your own peril. But if we heed the warning, we do it to our salvation. But we have a conscience that naturally produces guilt. And unless our hearts and our consciences are informed and instructed concerning biblical assurance, they will constantly and continuously convict us and accuse us and condemn us. And that's the problem. Many Christians struggle with assurance. And there may be many reasons for that. Some professing Christians, as I said earlier, struggle with assurance because they're just not converted. 
Their godless life testifies against them. Their conscience constantly accuses them, and rightly so. They're not converted. They ought not to have any assurance. However, others struggle to gain assurance because they've just not been biblically instructed on the topic. They just don't know what the Bible teaches about assurance. Perhaps they grew up in a legalistic environment, and so the idea of knowing with certainty is just a hard thing for them to grasp. Others, however, might struggle with assurance because they just have a natural personality or tendency or disposition, a temperament that is more prone to melancholy and depression and and negativity. They have a pessimistic view of the world. They always think negatively. They always see the worst. They never think the best. There are people like that, true Christians, who just have a tendency to do that. And even though they're converted, they struggle with assurance. I know believers who I consider solid Christians, true believers, godly people, who've told me they struggle with assurance of salvation. And perhaps there's someone here this morning that has that same problem. Perhaps your heart condemns you this morning. Perhaps your heart testifies against you this morning. What do we do about that? Well, John says there's a remedy. There's a solution. There is a way to overcome that. If you look at your life and you see love as a mark of your life, regardless of what your heart says, you can be confident that you're a Christian. Because love gives evidence that we possess the nature of God and therefore belong to God. So even if your heart condemns you, even if your heart says something different than what the Word of God says, what your life testifies you can still be assured because verse 20 goes on to say, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. Our hearts are often deceitful and wicked, Jeremiah 17.9 says. They can't be trusted. God never lies. God is always truthful. Our hearts are finite and limited. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows those who are His and He is giving trustworthy, reliable test of saving faith so that we also can know that we are His. So we can know the truth because God knows the truth and He has given us ways that we can know. God is greater than our hearts. In other words, believe the Word of God over the Word of your heart. Believe the Word of God over the word of your heart. What do you do if you're a Christian and you look at your life and you say, you know what? Yes, it's obvious. God's grace is working in me. I'm growing in love. I'm growing in righteousness, Christ-likeness, but my heart tells me I'm not saved. What do you do? You believe the word of God. Because the word of God is more certain than your heart. You believe the word of God no matter what your heart tells you. Now, of course, the flip side is true as well. If your life is not marked by love, it's marked by sin and selfishness, and your heart tells you, yes, I'm good, I'm on my way to heaven, your heart's deceitful. Still, you need to believe the Word of God over the Word of your heart. Disney tells you to follow your heart. The Word of God tells you not to do that. Instead, follow Christ, follow God, obey the Scripture. Believe God's Word over the Word of your heart. So if your life's marked by increasing love, you can know that you're saved because God says so. Simple as that. Your conscience may accuse you, but God defends you. And you can believe the truth 
of God. Now it's just an issue of believing. It's an issue of faith in the word of truth. In fact, this word pytho, translated in verse 19 as assure, is actually the root of the word faith, the word pistis. There is then an element or a seed of assurance in faith. Assurance and faith are linked together. You see, ultimately, our assurance rests upon the promises of God and we must believe those promises. Assurance starts with believing the promises of God. Let me read a few of the promises of God to you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans is my favorite book of the Bible. It's Paul's magnum opus, his most important work. And it provides for us the most theological, clear, systematic presentation of the Gospel in all of Scripture. And Romans chapter 8 is one chapter in that glorious presentation. And one of the major themes in Romans 8 is our assurance and our security as believers. So let me read these promises to you. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look, you could have no assurance if you thought that when you died you were going to hell. Right? You could have no assurance if you thought that there was wrath and condemnation for you when you die. What are you going to be assured about? Assured about judgment? But God has made promises to us. God has promised that there is no wrath, no condemnation for believers, those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for us because Christ took all of the condemnation we deserve on the cross. And so therefore our assurance ultimately rests on the cross, on the work of Christ. Now go to verse 28. Romans 8 verse 28. Paul continues to bolster this assurance. Verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That'll bring assurance, won't it? The sovereign, omnipotent ruler of the universe is sovereignly working all the minute details of my life out for my good. For my good. What's the good? We've got to keep reading. Causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good. The good towards which God works all things is your Christ-likeness. Your Christ-likeness. You have been predestined if you're a believer, you've been predestined by God to be like Christ. And none of God's purposes can be thwarted, Job says. He works all things after the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11 says. So we can have confidence that the God who predestined us for glory and Christ's likeness will bring us there. Then he goes in verse 30, These whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, watch this, He also glorified. What is our glorification? It's hereafter. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's a new body. It's perfected righteousness. But Paul, notice the tense. What tense is that in verse 30? Glorify. That's past tense. Wait a minute, Paul. Are we glorified already? No. But it's so certain, because God has predestined it, that Paul can use it in the past tense because it's as good as done. 
Your ultimate salvation as a Christian is secured by God. That brings assurance. Let's go to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What are we going to conclude to these glorious gospel promises? If God is for us, who is against us? God is working for your glory, your salvation, your eternal glorification. Who can thwart what God is working towards? He, verse 32, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? If God did not withhold His own beloved Son from you for your salvation, what is He going to withhold from you? If He gave you His Son, what else would He give you? Everything. All things that you need for life and godliness. He gives it all. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a, a charge against us that sticks? Who can accuse us of guilt? No one. Why? God is the one who justifies. If God has declared you innocent, no one can nullify that declaration. No one can cancel what God has declared. Verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? No one, because Christ Jesus is He who died. No one can condemn us because Christ was condemned for us. That's the good news. And even more than that, not only did He die for us, He presently lives for us. Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. If the dying Savior could accomplish your salvation, the living, interceding Savior can preserve your salvation. Simple enough, right? The living Savior can preserve your salvation. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword... Just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced, that word convinced there, verse 38, same word, pytho. I'm assured, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, Got to take a breath out of all that. That's exhaustive language. Nor depth or any other created thing. By the way, there's only two kinds of things. Created and uncreated. God is the only one in the category of uncreated. Everything else falls into the other category. Nothing, he's saying, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that give you assurance? It should. If you're a believer, God has predestined you for glory. Nothing can thwart that. Nothing can nullify your justification. Nothing can condemn you. Nothing can separate you from the eternal love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Because your salvation is secure in Christ. And so since God makes these gospel promises, since He gives us these precious and magnificent promises, as Peter says, we can have assurance of our salvation. So our assurance doesn't ultimately rest in us. It rests in the finished work of the Savior and in the ongoing work of His grace in our life. Got that? Our assurance is grounded in the finished work of the Savior on the cross and the ongoing work of His grace in our life. That's the grounds of our assurance.
And we can know that these promises apply to us because we see the work of grace manifested in our lives. And one manifestation of that grace is increasing love. So those marks are evident in your life this morning. doesn't matter what your heart says. Believe what God says. Believe what God says. You can have confidence and assure your heart before Him. We can have assurance. Scripture speaks about this assurance in so many places, it's baffling that anyone would deny the possibility. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish professing Christians who were on the fence. They're tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, go back to Judaism. The writer of Hebrews wants to encourage them to persevere in the true gospel in Christ, in the New Covenant. And one way he seeks to motivate them to do that is by reminding them of the assurance that the Gospel gives them. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 9. Verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. In other words, we're convinced you're saved. We're convinced you're saved that you're true believers. Why? Verse 10. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. He says you've shown love toward God's name. How? By loving and serving and ministering to the people of God. In doing that, you've showed love toward God and that is a sign of genuine salvation. So we're convinced that you're saved. Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. In other words, keep on serving others. Keep on loving. Persevere in faith and love because that is the evidence you really belong to God. That, the end of verse 11 says, leads to assurance. So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. You can have full assurance. Complete confidence. Absolute certainty about your salvation. How? Because you keep on believing and loving and manifesting the graces of the Spirit of God in your life. Now go to chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Glorious chapter here in Hebrews 10. The writer of Hebrews, verse 19 is where we'll start. The writer of Hebrews is focusing on Jesus as our high priest and sufficient mediator between God and man. Listen to what he writes, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, notice that, our confidence is rooted in what? The blood of Jesus. His blood and His righteousness. Verse 20. By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's amazing, isn't it? You can enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You can have your heart and your conscience sprinkled clean by His redemptive work. You can be purged of sin, not in purgatory, but now by Christ. By Christ. And all of that leads to full assurance. 
complete confidence. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul said, Brethren, beloved by the Lord, we know His choice of you. We know that you're chosen of God. We know that you're of the elect. How? That one, 1 Thessalonians 1, he goes on and says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know you're elect. We know you're saved because the gospel effectually came into your heart and it produced fruit in your life. That's why he goes on in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 1 and says, he speaks of their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. They prove their faith by their works. They prove their love by their labor. They prove their hope by their endurance. So Paul says, we know. We know you're chosen of God. We know His choice of you. We know that you are of the truth, to borrow John's language. Now go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter is right before 1 John. 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter makes a similar claim in verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter writing to a group of believers who suffered provides them with assurance. He says, says this, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. You can know with certainty that He's chosen you. You can know with absolute assurance that you are elect, that you're chosen of God for salvation and called effectually by the Gospel. How do you know that? He tells us, verse 5 again, or verse 10, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. If you practice these things, you'll never stumble into doubt. What things? What things? Well, now you've got to go back to verse 5. Verse 5. 2 Peter 1, verse 5. He says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. You profess faith? Okay. Add to your faith moral virtue, righteousness. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if you see these qualities increasingly in your life, you can make certain of His calling and choosing you. These things, He says, render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you see those qualities, those virtues in your life, you can have certainty that you have a true knowledge of Him. The verse 9 says, For he who lacks these qualities, one of which is love, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. If you lack these qualities, you're going to forget your former forgiveness. You're going to stumble into doubt. You're going to doubt the fact that you were ever forgiven in the past at all, and rightly so. Because if you lack these qualities, you should have no assurance of your forgiveness or your salvation. But if these qualities are yours, if they're evident in your life, if they're there increasingly, you can have confidence and make your calling and election sure. Back to 1 John 3 now. Just a few pages to the right at this point. 1 John 3. In verse 21, John kind of brings this point to a conclusion. 
He says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That's the goal, isn't it? To have confidence before God. The word parousia, parousia, it's a word that means boldness or freedom of speech. It's the word used in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, a familiar verse, where it says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We can go to God with confidence, with boldness, with freedom of speech. It's the word used back in chapter 2 of 1 John, in verse 28, when John said, Little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. We can have confidence at the second coming. In 1 John 4.17, he uses the word again, and he says, through love, we may have confidence in the day of judgment. We can have confidence as we go to God. We can have confidence as Christ comes to us at the second coming. We can have confidence in our salvation and on the day of judgment. So we can... Contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and other Arminian and Pelagian groups teach, we can have absolute assurance of our salvation. Are you convinced yet? Is this enough? We can have assurance. Confidence before God. But how? We can only have confidence before God if our heart does not condemn us. And the only way to have a heart that doesn't condemn us is to assure our hearts before Him. And the only way to assure our hearts before Him goes back to verse 19, by this. By love. Love for others demonstrates that we belong to God and thus provides assurance of heart and confidence before Him. So there is then assurance in love. Assurance in love. But there is a second avenue of assurance that John highlights here. And now you look at the clock and realize, wow, Jamie's going to go forever today. I'm not going to go through this one. We're just going to give you a brief introduction of this. But a second avenue. We see that in verse 22. Assurance in prayer. Assurance in prayer. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. God hears our prayers if we're believers. God answers our prayers if we're believers. We have confidence in prayer if we're believers. And as we see God answering our prayers, that increases our confidence and provides further assurance of our hearts that we belong to God. And we'll consider that along with the other avenues of assurance in more detail next time. But we can have assurance. We can have absolute confidence in our salvation. A confidence, again, rooted in the finished work of the Savior on the cross and based upon the ongoing work of God's grace in our hearts, manifested by the works of God in our life, such as love. So if you have love in your life, you can assure your heart before Him. But you can only have this confidence if you're a true believer. You can only have this confidence if you have followed after Christ. If you're not a Christian, you can have no confidence. If you're not a Christian, you can have no assurance. If you're not a Christian, if you die today, hell awaits you. No assurance in that. The reality is this. You have sinned against a holy God. You have incurred His guilt and His judgment. 
You deserve His wrath and His anger forever. And none of your good works could ever mitigate that. None of your good works could ever satisfy God. None of your good works could ever justify you before God. None of them. Nothing you ever do could do that. The good news is, God sent Christ from heaven to earth to bring us from earth to heaven. The good news is that He lived perfectly as our substitute in our place, satisfying the moral demands of the law. The good news is, He died as our substitute in our place, taking our punishment for our sin. He satisfied God, He turned away wrath, and He procured salvation for His people, and now is resurrected and interceding for us. And the only way to be saved from this hell that you deserve is through faith in Christ alone. So if you're not a Christian today, my plea to you is that you would come to Jesus. Repent, believe the Gospel, you will be saved, and then you can have confidence in your eternal destiny. You can have real assurance. But for us who have trusted in Christ, we can have this assurance now. If your heart condemns you this morning, believer, what do you do? You examine yourself. You see love, believe God, not your heart. Simple as that. Believe the Word of God over the Word of your heart. Is love the habitual pattern of your life? Again, we're not talking about perfection. If we were, I'd be out. I'd be disqualified. I'd be a castaway like the rest of us. We're talking about direction. We're talking about the dominant, increasing pattern of your life. Can you look at your life and say, you know what, yes, I see love. Not perfectly. Kicked the dog the other day, yelled at my wife, threw something at the kids, but I still love them. (laughs) I still serve them and make them dinner. You see increasing love in your life. If you see that, you can have confidence that you are indeed a believer. You're of the truth. And you can assure your heart before Him. That's good news, isn't it? Blessed assurance. Sounds like good news to me. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this blessed assurance. We're thankful that we don't have to live in the world groping around in the darkness, not knowing where we're going, as 1 John 2 said. We can have the light of assurance. Even if our heart says something different, even if our heart accuses us, even if our inner thoughts testify against us, seemingly we know that Your Word is more reliable than our heart because You're greater than our heart and You know all things. And so Lord, we put our hope not in our own consciences, we put it in the truth of Scripture. I pray that each of us this morning would continue to grow in grace and faith and love, would persevere in that love, so as to come to have full assurance. I pray for anyone here this morning that may not have that assurance. Perhaps there are people here who don't have that assurance because they're not believers. Oh Lord, that You would convert them by the power of Your mighty grace. That You would draw them to Christ by both the thunderings of the law and of the beauty of Christ. And You would save them and give them assurance. But for those this morning who may be here struggling with assurance illegitimately, those whose lives are marked by growth and love and grace and obedience, so much so that even those around them can see it, I pray that for them they would trust Your Word and believe Your promises because we know indeed that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're thankful for that assurance. 
So give us assurance, we pray. Amen.